Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the American militia movement from the history and origins right up to the recent plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, the likelihood of more violence, and the high probability that they will show up at polling places on election day. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, a local report from WBNS, The Takeaway, Counterspin, re-education, the Zero Hour with R.J. Escal, the Truth Report with Chauncey DeVega, and the Tom Hartman Program. The guys that were arrested the other night, they got together online in various groups, Facebook groups, and that caught the attention of the FBI. Plus, when some of the plotting started to involve the attack on law enforcement, somebody got cold feet and became a, an informant to the FBI, and that gave them a better idea of what was going on. These guys are amateurs, essentially, but some had explosive training and knew how to make a bomb with shrapnel that actually tested it out. And they had tested out and figured out which bridge they wanted to blow up to help in the kidnap of Governor Whitmer. So it was fairly long in the planning stages, and they were set to go and take take go through with their plot right before the election. So when you talk Governor about Whitmer. blowing up a bridge, explain what we're talking about here, to prevent authorities to come to the aid of Governor Whitmer, who they also had talked about lynching. Yes, the misogynistic undertones have been there all along. That includes in the protests back in April and May, lots of nooses, lots of Nazi imagery when it comes to Governor Whitmer. So that was always there. They wanted to draw law enforcement away from the governor in one plot. They wanted a direct assault on the Capitol building itself in another of the two plots. And talk about the weapons that they were charged with using, for example, an IED. Yeah, they did have explosives. They wanted to cause as much havoc as possible, in part to draw away attention from their overall goal of kidnapping the governor, but also in causing death and destruction. You don't set up a bomb to blow up and make it anti-personnel and not try to take out and kill people. Kyra Harris-Bolden, you're a Democratic Michigan state representative. A number of these men who were charged yesterday with terrorism were actually at your workplace, right, earlier, months ago, as they were taking over the Michigan legislature. Where were you? And can you describe the scene that ultimately President Trump would endorse? Yes, thank you for having me this morning to talk about this very important topic. It's very important to uh, note that this could have been prevented. Um, the Michigan House Democrats have been sounding the alarm since Operation Gridlock that happened in mid-April. And there was actually an Operation Judgment Day, of which they actually canceled session because they, I don't know, perhaps didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, the actual day that we were there, where the Capitol was stormed by domestic terrorists, we know now, it was surreal. Our offices are actually across the street from the Capitol. And from my office, I could see Confederate flags. I could see uh, Nazi uh, swastika paraphernalia. There were signs that say tyrant get the noose in, re in reference to our governor, Gretchen Whitmer. There was actually a truck with a noose hanging off of the back, a life-size noose. 
And so it didn't take much to know that these threats had nothing to do with the governor's so-called lockdown or stay home, stay safe orders. This was a very uh, dangerous situation um, that we were entering. And I will also share with you something that many people probably don't know. They were actually not allowed in the Capitol until minutes before we were called to vote. And explain when this was. This was mid-April, and so kind of the height of the stay home, stay safe orders. And obviously, there was a lot of angst. There were a lot of businesses closed. But, you know, I think it was just also kind of used as an excuse to rally. We also saw a lot of Trump flags, which seemed out of place for a a rally against stay home, stay safe orders. But this happened in mid-April at the height of COVID. So visitors were not allowed in the Capitol building until minutes before we were called in to vote. And so it was a purposeful action that we would have to be confronted with the same people that were armed, that had Nazi paraphernalia, that had nooses, that had Confederate flags. And fortunately, our gallery um, was closed, but the Senate wasn't. And you may have seen a picture going around the Internet where it was actually confirmed that two of the men arrested had previously been standing armed above the Senate chamber. And that picture was taken by Senator Paul Hankey. Some of the senators actually have bulletproof vests because of this situation. It was not safe. And I will also note it was during the height of COVID and many of these people were not wearing masks and they were crowded in our state house. And so that added an extra layer of kind of a terror uh, for us. We were dealing with a global pandemic and we're dealing with what we know now to be domestic terrorists. So in April, that's when President Trump, the time you're describing now, tweeted, liberate Michigan. And then in May, he wrote, these are very good people. I want to go to Washington Congress member Pramila Jayapal, who was questioning Attorney General William Barr during a House Judiciary Committee hearing in July about the threats to Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. It was a contentious exchange. Jayapal noted the discrepancy between Barr's militarized response to Black Lives Matter protesters and armed white militia members who displayed white nationalist symbols and threatened Michigan's governor. On two separate occasions, after President Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan to subvert stay-home orders to protect the public health of people in Michigan, protesters swarmed the Michigan Capitol carrying guns, some with swastikas, Confederate flags, and one even with a dark-haired doll with a noose around its neck. Are you aware that these protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded? No. You're not aware of that? I was not aware. Major protests in Michigan. You're the attorney general, and you didn't know that the protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded. So well, obviously you couldn't be concerned about that. Well, there are a lot you, of protests around the United States. And uh, on attorney June 1st, general Barr, I was worried about the District of Columbia, in which is federal. In certain parts of the country, you're very aware of those. But when protesters with guns and swastikas and I am aware of, of protests. 
Excuse me, Mr. Barr, this is government. my time, and I control it. <clears throat> you are aware of certain kinds of protesters, but in Michigan, when protesters carry guns and Confederate flags and swastikas and call for the governor of Michigan to be beheaded and shot and lynched, somehow you're not aware of that. So that's Congressmember Pramila Jayapal questioning Attorney General William Barr. Remember, the Attorney General is in charge of the Justice Department. It's the FBI, the U.S. Attorney, and state officials who've now charged 13 men with various domestic terrorism charges. I want to go back to Russ McNamara and talk about the groups that are involved. This is not just a disparate group of individuals. We're talking about Bugaloo, and we're talking about, well, tell us about this group called the Wolverines, the yeah, the Wolverine, the Wolverine Watchmen. Watchmen. Yeah, and uh, they're just part of one of the many groups that have popped up over the last decade or so. Uh, even over the weekend, uh, a man involved in the anti-government Boogaloo movement, uh, Eric Allport, was shot and killed by federal agents in a parking lot of a suburban Detroit restaurant. Following a shootout, Robert Snell, the great Detroit news reporter here, figured out that he played a small role in the disastrous Ruby Ridge standoff, but he was still active within the militia and anti-government movement. So we've seen all of these individual groups pop up over the last decade, partially fueled because it's easier to get together uh, via social media. So whether or not it's a private Facebook group or an online forum, these guys are getting together. But if you look at these guys and their trail on social media, uh, they are a collective, but they're fairly well fractured, and they have their own ideals and ideology, and they've got piecemeal equipment. Their tactical gear is not anything that you consider professional, but their firearms, for the most part, are. A terrifying plot in Michigan allegedly planned in central Ohio. And today, we're hearing from those who know the suspects. These men, six of them, are charged with trying to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Seven others are accused of trying to help. Adam Fox was allegedly the leader. Investigators say he wanted to recruit 200 men to storm Michigan's capital. They allegedly met to talk about the plot in Dublin. We're told they trained with firearms and explosives. I knew he was with the militia, but I didn't know that he was, you know, this into it. It's not illegal to own weapons or ammo. It's when you cross that line like he did, he needs to be punished. This man says Fox was kicked out of one militia, so he started his own. But exactly what is a militia and how dangerous is it? 10TV's Brittany Bailey talked with a local expert in domestic terrorism. The militia movement is basically anti-government anger plus conspiracy theories plus guns. Mark Pitcavage is a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League. He's been studying domestic terrorism for a quarter century. The militia movement does have a long history of criminal activity, ranging from illegal weapons and explosives up to deadly standoffs with law enforcement, up to terrorist plots and attacks. The militia movement, and that's an important distinction here, we're not talking a generic paramilitary group, took root around 1993 to 1994. That was after Ruby Ridge, Waco, and two new federal gun laws. The combination of all those things, plus the election of Bill Clinton and NAFTA and a couple other little things, all sort of combined to 
um, caused this resurgence of anti-government extremism in the United States and the formation of specifically of the militia movement. But 2020 served up a new landscape with more talk of gun control laws, followed by the pandemic and lockdowns. The militia movement was very much opposed to any of those restrictions and came out uh, to protest. In fact, one of the very first anti-lockdown protests was organized by anti-government extremists um, here, right here in central Ohio. We had the very first one. The Southern Poverty Law Center tracked anti-government groups last year, citing 32 in Ohio, 13 considered militias. The government's own Homeland Threat Assessment released just this month calls domestic violent extremism a threat, and at least one former neo-Nazi agrees. I'm telling you that this is going to happen. States like Michigan, states like Wisconsin, the northern states um, that have some wilderness area, there have been militias from other states training up there. They are waiting and hoping that something does go wrong because they want to hold up in them hills. It doesn't take very many people intent on doing harm to cause a whole lot of misery for a community. And that's why we are concerned about extremist violence. Daryl, we've heard about the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo movement here in 2020. Curious, what makes those groups different from what else we've been hearing about with these militias, for example? So the Proud Boys are basically uh, a group that like to agitate at different protests. They can devolve into street fighting between protesters and counter-protesters. So that's more of a kind of a state and local uh, problem. It's not rises to the level of a terrorist group. Whereas the Boogaloo movement, we've had a number of incidents recently, despite the fact this movement's only existed for about a year or less. We've had shootings, fatal shootings of police officers on California. We've had terrorist plotting in Las Vegas. We had an individual in Michigan in Madison Heights that got gunned down by the FBI for uh, pulling out a weapon on them when they attempted to arrest them. So this is a movement that wants to basically take advantage of the civil unrest that's ongoing and try to exploit it and try to cause more civil unrest and destabilize society to hopefully start a civil war, basically. Heidi, I was hearing about the potential for a quote-unquote race war back in 2008 after President Barack Obama was elected to uh, Daryl's earlier point here. But this, I mean, polling, let's take a look back in, at Michigan here, because polling is showing that a lot of Michiganders are actually supportive of Governor Whitmer's restrictions, for example, on the coronavirus. So where is all this anti-government sentiment coming from? Well, it's been around for a long time. I mean, we can trace this back to the 1990s. There's always been a segment of folks, especially in Michigan, that have been vehemently anti-government, don't like the federal government, although that's changed with the rise of President Trump, and that view any kind of measures like Governor Whitmer's taken as restrictions on their constitutional freedoms and something that they should fight back against. And we saw very quickly just after a few weeks of lockdown, these massive protests in several states, including Michigan, against the quarantines and the lockdowns. Heidi, one of the big concerns here as we head into this very contentious uh, presidential election just a couple weeks away is what's going to happen at the polls. I want to play a clip from President Trump right now. I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. 
Heidi, that was uh, President Trump saying he's urging his supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully. What can that take? What can we take away from that, Heidi? Is the president inciting some of these militias to do, quote unquote, poll watching? I'm quite worried about exactly that, that Trump is signaling to his supporters like he did back in late April with those liberate North Carolina, liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan tweets to say to them that they should be at the polls. Heavily armed folks standing in front of poll areas will be extremely intimidating and quite scary. And you have to worry also about people who will be activated into acts of domestic terrorism. I think people forget that we had four such acts around the 2018 elections. And this is an even more fraught environment than that year. So this is kind of scary. And Daryl, to that point, I mean, one of the things that we're hearing is that the president is really sowing doubt about the legitimacy of the election results. He's been doing this for quite some time as he's begun to consistently trail in the polls. Could violent militias, Daryl, act on this and interfere with the transition of power if, in fact, the president continues to sow this type of doubt? That is definitely a possibility, and we're entering a period of heightened risk of things like this happening because these narratives of potential voter fraud, uh, rigged election, these are code words that the militia interprets as the president being illegally taken out of power or something like that. And so if the Republicans end up losing the White House, then there may be people on the outer fringes because they've been, you know, told this fearful narrative may turn that into action. Heidi, I want to just close here by a little bit. Uh, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel last week said that what she's witnessing, what she's seeing in Michigan, and I'm quoting right now, is not just a Michigan problem, it's an American problem. What does she mean by that, Heidi? Well, we have had an incredible amount of terrorism coming both from militia-type groups and white supremacists over the last several months. And this is something that's widespread uh, all across the nation. Daryl mentioned the possible attack on social justice uh, movement in Las Vegas by Boogaloo Boys, cops being killed by Boogaloo Boys. This group had connections to that particular movement. That is happening all across the United States. And this is such a fraught period. It is very possible that we're gonna see even more violence. Thank God this plot was broken up, but we don't know what's to come. Now it's time to take a break from today's topic to play another round of America's favorite political game show. Check your blind spot! That's right, it's Check Your Blind Spot, powered by Ground News, the first-ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. And the Ground News app features The Blind Spot, which highlights news stories that just aren't being covered by one end of the political spectrum or the other. So I use The Blind Spot to quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is our reigning champion, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now let's dive right in and get ready for round one. In whose political blind spot is this story? French Genghis Khan exhibit put off over interference claims. 
So a French museum has postponed an exhibit about Mongol Emperor Genghis Khan citing interference by the Chinese government, which it accuses of trying to rewrite history. And it comes at a time in which the Communist Party is hardening discrimination against ethnic Mongols within China. Oh, boy. So the interference is from China. That's correct. Okay. Well, I'm going to guess this is in the left's blind spot because the right has been doing everything they can to try to point to all the bad things they think China is doing. Good guess. (gasps) Oh, no. You are not correct. That is my first wrong answer. Oh, So this is uh, primarily in the right's blind spot. I think your reasoning was solid. (laughs) But the catch here is that we're talking about rewriting history, something Uh that the left is particularly against and the right is not so much against at this moment in time. And that it's, you know, it's about a a museum in France. I mean, they they probably didn't even catch on. (laughs) Let's get ready for round two. Okay. In whose political blind spot is this story? Senator Hirono asks Judge Amy Coney Barrett if she's ever sexually assaulted anyone during her uh, confirmation hearing. So the story goes like this. Senator Hirono said that she began asking nominees the questions about sexual assault and harassment in January 2018. She tweeted at the time, Starting today, I'm asking nominees to our courts under oath whether or not they have a history of sexual assault or harassment. Like in other industries, our judges are in positions of power and hashtag times up. And so then Mm -hmm. she just asked Barrett, quote, I ask each nominee these two questions and I will ask them to you. Since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming she's saying she said no. That's correct. Okay. Well, the way you frame the actual story, I'm going to say this is in the rights blind spot because... That sounds like a really reasonable (laughs) thing to ask someone if you made it a standard question. You're asking every nominee. So that's going to be my guess, but... Oh, no! So it's in the left's blind spot because it's so reasonable that it's not worth commenting on, whereas the right is writing headlines like, Senator actually goes there absolute idiocy. Hirono cements her insanity. And then my favorite, Democratic senator torched online for asking Amy Coney Barrett if she's ever committed sexual assault. That's my favorite because Mm. the story isn't what happened or why she asked the question. It's that she got torched online. That was sort of tricky because the framing really sounded like we were talking about how reasonable Hirono was, but okay, okay. Because my instinct was like, well, the people losing their minds over that would definitely be the right, but okay. I just wanted to give the full (laughs) framing of the story. And finally, in whose political blind spot is this story? You may recall that the UN Food Agency won the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. Well, about four days later, it was announced 
that the World Food Program said it needs $6.8 billion over the next six months to avert famine. <laughs> so that Peace Prize money isn't really doing the trick. I think the Peace Prize might come with $10 million, but... Yeah, but that's, yeah. <laughs> not enough. <laughs> okay, I mean, this is my last one. Get nervous, but I would I would guess this is in the right blind spot because they well oh man you know wait hold on <laughs> hmm I'm gonna go out on a limb and say this is in the left's blind spot because the right is so against and upset over the economic impact of the virus they're willing to try to say it like doesn't exist or isn't dangerous or whatever and so they constantly are pointing to the economic casualties or the financial losses which the left also cares about but it's a different angle that's what i'm going with very well argued god audience is so harsh they, they will turn on God, you yeah no the the correct answer is that it was in america's blind spot the correct oh, answer was is, america mm, so there. <laughs> so it, it turns out that no american news agencies have reported on this with wow. with the exception i had to dig for it u.s news and world report had uh -huh. had a, a mention of it but Reuters from the UK, a German outlet, an outlet from Singapore, South Africa, Al Jazeera from Qatar, the Jerusalem Post, and outlets from Malaysia and Turkey all wrote oh, about this. And that's about it. And so I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, you have uh, lost the game handily. Oh, it was not a good showing. I'm no longer the reigning champion. What are we going to do? <laughs> Do I still get to come back next time? <laughs> we, we may have to have you back to see if you could redeem yourself. Yeah, yeah I think that's So true. as always, Amanda from Boston, thanks for playing. That <laughs> <Barely>. wraps <laughs> That wraps it up for today. It's important to mention that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone and definitely not that of the staunchly unopinionated ground news. If you'd like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features and let them know we sent you, go to ground.news slash best. As always, whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to... Check your blind spot! A major worry in an electoral season that has enough of them is the prospect of people in military garb and armed with lethal weapons showing up at polling stations, marching around and minimally staring menacingly at people. Some of those would be part of self-declared militias, a term we've heard thrown around, but news reporting on militia intervention in the election, for example, reads a bit like that of an oncoming storm cloud. It's not good, but what are you going to do? The thing is, there are laws and we can have a public conversation around the fact that people in camo with guns are showing up at social justice protests and threatening people 
claiming they have a constitutional right to do so. Addressing a concern starts with understanding it, and that's what our guest does. Mary McCord is legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting law professor at Georgetown University. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Mary McCord. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start, I guess, with some definition. I mean, what defines a militia and what makes a militia unlawful? Right. Well, it's a good question because oftentimes these unauthorized armed groups of individuals will point to the Constitution's use of the word militia as their authority to exist. But militia, as used in both federal and state law, simply refers to all able-bodied residents between certain ages. It's usually like 17 to 45 or some states 17 to 55 who are available to be called forth by the government in defense of the state. So in the case of the U.S. Constitution, Congress has that authority to call them forth through statutory enactments, and then they would report up through the president. And in the states, it's the governor who has the authority to call them forth. But there is no authority under federal or state law for groups of armed individuals to sort of self-activate as a militia and undertake what are typically law enforcement functions or even functions of actual state-sponsored militias. So the only lawful militia is a militia that's been called forth by the state. For example, the state National Guards, those are what the Constitution refers to as the state militias. Those are official military organizations that report up through the governor or the governor's deputized person. So there's no authority for just this sort of self-deployment. Well, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about D.C. versus Heller, because the Second Amendment is this kind of zombie idea. It's this idea that just won't let go the invocation of it. And even news media present it as kind of, well, some people interpret the Second Amendment as giving them the right to to organize and do this. But the law actually did speak on this. Yeah. Yes. In fact, the Supreme Court has been very clear about this. There's a lot of gray area in the Second Amendment. This is not one of those gray areas. So I'll get to Heller in a minute, but Heller actually reiterated an opinion that the Supreme Court issued in 1886. In that case, it actually upheld a state statute, which exists on the books of 29 states, even to this day, a state statute that bars bodies of men from associating together as a military unit or parading or drilling in firearms with public. Now, mind you, this dates to post-Civil War. That's when these statutes were passed. And you can imagine the last thing that states wanted to have to reckon with were rogue militias that might threaten their own authority. So in that case in 1886, the Supreme Court thought it without question that states must be able to ban paramilitary organizations in order to preserve peace and good order. 2008, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court decided for the first time that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for individual self-defense, and it actually pointedly contrasted that right with things that are not protected. And it restated its decision from 1886 that the Second Amendment does not prevent states from prohibiting paramilitary organizations. And in fact, all states do. You know, the law is just words on a page until it's activated. And the group that you work with, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University, 
activated the law in the wake of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, in which listeners will know James Fields drove his car into people who showed up to oppose this tiki torch Nazi evoking march, and Heather Heyer was killed and many were injured. What did you see in that suggested a response that you could use with existing legal and policy tools? And and what came out of that? Yeah, that's where this sort of strange niche expertise has developed in anti-militia law. That's that's really where it first started. So in the immediate aftermath of that really horrendous event, a lot of commentators were a little bit shrugging and saying, so, well, what can be done? There's a First Amendment right to engage in free speech and assembly, and there's a Second Amendment right to bear firearms, and Virginia is an open carry state. And, you know, it's kind of like, wow, what can be done? But as lawyers, and particularly those I'd been spent most of my career at the Department of Justice until early 2017, and as lawyers, myself and my colleagues, we thought, well, the First Amendment does not protect violence, and it doesn't protect incitement to imminent violence. And the Second Amendment, thanks to the decision in Heller, we know protects an individual right to bear arms for self-defense, but it doesn't allow groups to organize together as private armies. And so that's what led us to the state anti-paramilitary activity laws in Virginia, which is where the Unite the Right rally took place. And that's what also eventually led us to learn that all 50 states include provisions either in their state constitutions or in state statutes that bar private, unauthorized paramilitary activity. And so we relied on those states in, in Virginia. It's a constitutional provision as well as a criminal statute and also an additional criminal statute that bars individuals from falsely assuming the functions of law enforcement, as we see some of these militias do. So we relied on all of those laws to seek a court orders to prohibit these groups from returning in the future and engaging in that kind of armed, coordinated use of force or projection of the ability to use force. We weren't seeking damages for injuries in the past. There's other lawsuits doing this. This was purely forward-looking relief, and we represented the city of Charlottesville and local businesses and local residential associations who were concerned that the white nationalists were going to return with their heavy, you know, militarization and cause similar violence in the future. And that case was successful. We won on all of our theories against a motion to dismiss the case. And then after that, actually, it resolved before trial because every one of the 23 different individual and organizations who were defendants ended up agreeing by consent decree to court orders that would prohibit them permanently from returning to Charlottesville as part of units of two or more people acting in concert with weapons during any rally, protest, demonstration, or march. And so that work is what caused us to do then ultimately a 50-state catalog of the laws that prohibit private paramilitary activity. That's what's led to us to actually partner up with the district attorney in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in another similar case against an unlawful militia there. And it's what led us to do the 50 fact sheets that we've recently published, separate one for every state, to help people know what to do if they see groups of armed individuals around polling places. And that's not just 
so that voters will know that that can be intimidating and that it's illegal, but it's also so election officials will know and so local law enforcement will know and state elected officials will know and state attorney generals and secretaries of state because there's been such a mythology about the Second Amendment that so many people actually believe it protects this activity and it does not. So part of this was just to make sure to get that word out there that correct the record, this is not constitutionally protected. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. One of the aspects that a lot of these fascists, these Nazis, like to project is the idea of the Great Replacement. Now, the Great Replacement is basically when a group of people, it doesn't have to be race, is replaced by another group of people. That's kind of how this conspiracy theory goes. A lot of the time, though, it is tied to race, and traditionally, it's the idea that white people are being replaced by minorities. And because more and more nowadays, the media tends to follow in the direction of these professional reactionaries and continues to have a more propagandistic, more leaning, we tend to see a lot of this stuff being projected in the news as things that are virtually innocuous like immigrants replacing you at your job. You know the old meme, they took your job? Well, not only are they taking your jobs, they're also sneaking into your bedrooms and having sex with all the white women and diluting the white race, turning it into a mongrel race that is eventually going to create a genocide, meaning no longer will there ever be any white babies again. This is kind of the mentality that goes along with this great replacement theory. It takes the they took our jobs meme to its natural conclusion. An update. So every other minority, every other race that exists within Western civilization is inevitably trying to fuck the white race out of existence. It wouldn't make any logical sense if it wasn't for the Jews. Because clearly, 
The Jews are the ones that are convincing all of these minorities that they have to use social justice to f*** the white race out of existence. See, that's what it is. That's what it is. Jews have decided to weaponize social justice to use minority groups as a weapon to genocide the United States and completely destroy Western culture, aka white culture. The funny thing is that I'm making a joke about this, but I'm not actually exaggerating. This is literally what they believe. This whole thing is, this is part of the JQ, the Jewish question. They think that there is an organized group of Jews that are out there that have conspired to weaponize immigrants and social justice to literally destroy the white race. And the funny thing about this, actually, none of it is funny, but it's all kind of funny, like in a weird Orwellian dystopic fucking crazy type of funny, is that the mainstream media and a lot of mainstream right-wing propagandists are following suit with this whole idea. And they're dog-whistling the idea just as hard as anybody that's a white nationalist. Only they're saying things like multiculturalism will destroy Western civilization, which is... A literal dog whistle for race mixing will destroy white culture. It's just using slightly different words. They will not replace us literally means Jews will not replace the white man. This is all dog whistled even further in the mainstream media when they talk about those immigrants taking your jobs or the idea that they're flooding across the border so you need to build that wall. They want to turn everybody away from the actual problem, which is the system, and direct everyone's attention towards a scapegoat, towards the immigrants, towards the minorities. They're making it seem like those are the people that are the enemy and not the ones that are sitting at the top, profiting off of all of this while having a good, deep belly laugh. The Great Replacement Theory is a fascistic theory. It always has been. And the elites have absolutely no problem propagating such a theory as long as it gets some of the attention off of their back and puts it onto somebody else, preferably someone with no money and no power. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, voting is not enough. Protect the election results. We're less than three weeks out from election day, just 18 days left. And while we'd rather be encouraging you to join the Get Out the Vote campaign and make sure your friends and family are registered and have a voting plan, instead we have to talk today about the big fascist elephant in the room. We all know that we have severe structural issues to address when it comes to American elections, from voter suppression laws to gerrymandering to the Electoral College. But this year, the threats include all of those things and something more. The calculated efforts by Trump and the GOP to do everything they possibly can to subvert and sow doubt about the electoral process and therefore the results. Trump is loud about his accusations and aspersions, but the GOP is a whole lot quieter, working behind the scenes at the state level and through their judicial picks to manipulate and pull levers we didn't even know existed until now. It's not pleasant to think about worst-case scenarios, but the best case is sadly unlikely. We need to prepare now for the reality that things will get messy and understand what our role will need to be as citizens in that moment. First, we'll talk about prevention. 
The nonpartisan anti-corruption organization Represent Us has launched Save the Vote, which includes six steps you can take to protect democracy, and the first two are key. Step one is to tell your state's top election official to count every vote before declaring a winner. An unprecedented number of Americans are voting by mail, and we are already seeing record-breaking voting. Counting every vote may take a while, and at no point should it be stopped before completion. Make sure that your state isn't planning to jump the gun before all of the results are in. Step two, demand your state lawmakers respect the vote count. The Atlantic reported that Trump's campaign has spoken to state legislatures about trying to bypass the vote tally. State lawmakers can prevent this by committing on record to only choosing a winner based on the vote count. To take immediate action on these steps, go to represent.us and click Save the Vote under their 2020 election tab. There you'll also find the other four steps, which include a toolkit to help fight disinformation and lies about safe voting options, confirming you are registered to vote, signing up to be a poll worker, and encouraging everyone to vote as early as possible. But Trump has already said he'll only accept the results if he wins. So what do we do if Trump loses but won't concede? Protect the Results is a coalition of organizations led by Indivisible and Stand Up America, laying the groundwork for voters to mobilize if Trump does not accept the results of the election. Events are already being organized by voters across the country on November 4th, and you can find one near you or plan one yourself. Go to protecttheresults.com to learn more. And finally, Sunrise Movement has launched Count on Us, a plan to defeat Trump and defend the election. The campaign is one part get-out-the-vote effort and one part trainings and direct action. And if Trump tries to steal the election, they're calling for a mass strike, with the idea that Trump can't govern if the nation's people are not going to work or school. Go to wecountonus.org to sign up and learn more. In an article from Waging Nonviolence called 10 Things You Need to Know to Stop a Coup, because that's popular reading right now, they point out that, quote, We have to be ready to declare loudly and strongly, this is a coup, end quote. Power grabs don't have to look like a military coup with the opposition being arrested. If votes stop being counted or the person who lost tries to take or hold power, we have to call it what it is and not shy away from it. Look, we all hope it doesn't come to this, but we must be prepared because mass direct action might be our only shot at stopping an attempted coup. Stealing ourselves to be ready gives us a shot if things begin to fall apart. Every day, it just gets more clear. Voting is not enough. It's just not. The segment notes include all the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And once again, this segment is available on the Voting Is Not Enough page at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020 action. So if stopping an attempted coup in America is important to you, I sure hope it is, be sure to spread the word about Voting Is Not Enough, protect the election results, so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong? Putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong. Cause it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change. This is a cancer in the United States. This is a cancer that we have had in this country for a long, long time. Domestic terrorism that is fundamentally based in uh, racism and, well, to some extent, even sexism, uh, misogyny, but in particular on racism. We had the Klan back in the 19th century and the tw- and through the, the 20th century. And now we've got the Klan has been reinvented under a variety of names as these right-wing militia groups. 
And the idea is, as Mike Lee said, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. You know, we're run by a small group of people. We're actually a representative republic, which is one of the definitions of a democracy. But anyway, this is extraordinarily destructive stuff. This is very, very dangerous stuff. And you go back, you look at what Tim McVeigh did when he blew up the Oklahoma City uh, federal building. In my humble opinion, I mean, you know, just two years before that, you had uh, Waco with David Koresh, and I believe it was a year before that you had Randy Weaver getting killed by federal officers. Koresh and Weaver were both basically right-wing, hardcore, white supremacist, armed insurrectionists. And the book that these people were reading back then, the book that actually animated Tim McVeigh, according to Tim McVeigh, was a book called The Turner Diaries. And uh, The Turner Diaries is a novel. It's a rather poorly written novel. It's kind of on the on par with Ayn Rand's writing. You know, it's uh, juvenile. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that you would expect coming out of a high school student or f- a first attempt by a young person. Uh, its worldview is so simplistic. But basically, in The Turner Diaries, you've got this story of a group of white people who are, well, actually, they're trying to rebel against the government. Where it starts is they blow up a federal building. And I believe it was in Oklahoma City. It's been 20 years since I read the book. It might have been someplace else. might have been in the Midwest. But they blow up a federal building. And in response to that, the administration, and this was not a partisan book. It's not Democrats and Republicans. It's just, you know, like the white nationalist versus America. And in response to this group, this militia group blowing up this federal building, the president and the federal government pass laws banning all guns and start taking guns away from people. And as a result of that, the white militias get activated. They rise up. The guys who have got 10, 15 assault weapons in their basement and and a thousand rounds of ammunition, they rise up, they go out in the streets, and they start killing people. A second civil war erupts. And half the book is devoted to that. And then at the end of the book, the white guy militia members, the guys with the assault weapons and all the bullets, have succeeded in killing almost all of the people of color in this country. African Americans, Hispanics, Jews. He's throwing them into that category in Turner Diaries. And at the very end, the strong, proud white men are standing there holding their guns and saying, we have taken back our country. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the details of the kidnapping plot. WBNS did a local report on the history of militias. The takeaway compared multiple groups, including the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Movement, and militias. Counterspin spoke with Mary McCord about why militias are very explicitly not protected by law, as they seem to believe. 
Re-Education on YouTube explained the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. Members then heard three bonus clips, including The Takeaway explaining the somewhat friendly dynamic between police, FBI enforcement, and right-wing militias. The Zero Hour with R.J. Eskow had on Robert Evans to discuss strategies for avoiding a second civil war. And Chauncey DeVega on The Truth Report spoke with Kathleen Bellew about the long history of the white power movement, often linked to militias, and their plans for a global race war. Then we all came back together and all heard Tom Hartman explaining the plot of the Turner Diaries, which is basically the fantasy manual for how white supremacists could win a race war. For non-members, those bonus clips I mentioned are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we hate the idea of a lack of funds being a barrier to you hearing more information. So every request is granted no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is Alex. Regarding this discussion over the need for a new national myth, I'm a little surprised no one else said this. I forget the caller's name, but someone argued for a progressive narrative of American history, whereby rights and inclusion gradually expand, which benefits everyone. Hey, Jay. It's Craig from Ohio. I, for, I guess, about 25 years since I've been paying close attention to politics, have believed that what that myth should be is what I call the progressive myth. Everyone for everyone, you know, would you fight for your neighbor? Everyone's in it together. We, need, we leave no one behind. Progress is for everyone, not just for individuals or various groups. And it's why I've sort of been distressed over the past, I don't know, several years, five, ten years, about identity and struggles between groups taking more, a more prominent role in our politics. Not because I have any objection to the complaints of women, minorities, immigrants. I think they're all valid, and I think that they need to be called out. But the problem is, it seems to uh, divide us into factions, which is against the progressive myth, as I conceive of it. Unless I'm misunderstanding here, it seems like they said that focusing too much on oppressed minorities can drive people away, and we should instead talk about how things have gotten better. This is a huge problem, and I'm honestly surprised that the only feedback on the most recent episode was generally positive about this vision. That myth of progressive incrementalism is already the myth most Americans cling to. It has a lot of holes. It absolves us of the responsibility to make amends for past oppression and ignores current oppression. It coddles us into thinking that things will naturally just get better without us doing anything to make it so. It ignores that the prosperity and stability that allows many to feel like they belong is directly based on the oppression and exploitation of others. And what I feel is the most important criticism. The reason the social justice left focuses on oppressed people is precisely because they have been ignored, left behind, and exploited. By not listening to them or de-emphasizing their struggles we are merely enabling their continued oppression and actively preventing the very expansion of rights and inclusion that the caller and others are supposedly celebrating. 
Honestly, the caller sounded like they were essentially advocating for colorblindness, which as you've discussed is counterproductive. Apologies if I've mischaracterized the caller's viewpoint, but this is the way it sounded to me. Love the show, best wishes. Hi Jay, this is Stacy from the Bay Area. I'm calling in not in response to any specific episode, but rather with just a general message, plea, whatever you want to call it, for everybody listening, and that is this. If you don't know about all of the people and all of the propositions on your ballot, you know, there's school board, there's a health board, there are all these things that might be really hard to find information about the candidates running. I'm in California. We have Prop 14 through Prop 25. And so that's a lot of text to read through. If you're clear on two or three of them, then vote on those. This is what I called to tell you about. Vote on the offices that you know about. You know that this presidential election is between Donald the Hutt and Joe Biden. And I'm real clear on which one that I'm going to vote for. Obviously, it's going to be Biden. Biden was not my first pick in the primary, and I don't mind saying that. But he and Senator Harris are certainly my pick over Donald the Hutt and Pence the Dents in the presidential election. So, back to the point at hand. Vote on the offices that you're secure about, that you know you have an idea about. If you don't know about the person running for school board, leave it blank. It's okay, because your vote will still be counted for the bubbles that you filled in. Likewise, for the propositions that are facing you. Now, here in California, we've got a bunch of them, and I blame no one for not reading all of the tiny, tiny, tiny fine print font on Prop 14, which is the only one that we get in print mail to everyone, because by law, we get print mailers of bond measures. Prop 14 is the only bond measure. The others, 15 to 25, are initiatives or legislative ballots. So if you don't feel confident casting your vote yay or nay on any of those, then don't fill it in. Fill in the ones that you are confident on and send your ballot in. Your ballot will be counted. The votes that you cast will be counted. You know, when we get the results back and we see a tiny percentage on these really obscure little initiatives, these little obscure propositions, that's because people didn't know and didn't vote. But their vote on the top of the ticket was still counted. Every bubble you fill in will be counted. And if you don't fill in a bubble, it doesn't matter. Send your ballot in. Vote on what you're confident about voting for. Well done, you. 
Oh, and Jay, <laughs> I have to say that I love, love, love the voiced male thing that you're doing now. I'm a voice actor myself, so that's why I'm not using one of the other very talented voiced male things that you offer. But how brilliant is that? I mean, I'm also a depressed person that doesn't like to interact all that much, and I totally get it that people feel insecure about how they sound and would like very much to have a good voice actor to read their script. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you for doing that. Anyway, y'all, vote. Vote, 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 vote on the things that you are confident about and do it. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. I just want to wrap up today by alerting you to the fact that right-wing media would very much like for you to know that two, at least two, of the men arrested in connection to the Whitmer kidnapping plot are actually not pro-Trump right-wing nutjobs, but are anti-government in general anarchist nutjobs. And so the, the articles that you would see written if you were to search for something along those lines is that the mainstream media, and particularly the liberal media, is lying to you and duping you into believing that the whole plot and all the people behind it are Trump-supporting militants who heard him say to liberate Michigan and snapped into action to do the will of their great leader. But, as it turns out, a couple of them are anarchists. Therefore, I guess the assumption is it blows the whole narrative completely out of the water. So I'm happy to mention that that is the case. It very much seems to be the case that a couple of them are anarchists, which when you think about it is not really that strange that anarchist anti-government people are going to find some common cause with extreme right-wing anti-government people especially when the target is a Democrat, because you got the Trump supporters arrested in relation to the kidnapping plot. The vast majority of them, by appearances, seem to be Trump-supporting, Republican Party-supporting, hard right-wing conservatives. But for them to make common cause with an anarchist or two who don't just hate Democrats, but hate everyone in government, it's really not that surprising. So I, I just wanted to point out that that is a fact as far as 
people can tell at the moment that a couple of anarchists who the right-wing conservative media wants to label and just equate with the left. If you're an anarchist, it means you're on the left. You're basically canvassing for Biden. And, and so they are framing that as if it throws a wrench in the entire framing of everyone in the media talking about this story. And the fact is, it just doesn't. It is interesting. It's a wrinkle. It is more nuanced and complicated than many are presenting it as. But it doesn't actually change the broad structures of being anti-government, the structures and, and mentality behind the militia movement. And what's interesting is that some anarchists are finding common cause with obviously explicitly right-wing militias because the right-wing militias are being emboldened, as we're describing, emboldened by Trump and, you know, everything he said, not just the liberate the states tweets. But, you know, what, what's odd is that right-wing militias usually spike during Democratic presidencies, but in this instance, they're spiking under a Republican presidency for reasons that should be obvious to anyone. And so for an anarchist, who knows where exactly they would place themselves on the political spectrum. They hate literally everyone in government. And as, as any good conservative will tell you, the left loves government. We love big government. We love the government doing stuff for us. There's a whole lot to love about the government if you're on the left. So to say that anarchists are on the left is going to need a little bit more explanation than that to, to be convincing. So I will go as far as to say that it is interesting that anarchists who fall somewhere on the political spectrum are finding common cause with extreme right-wing conservative militias who are usually only anti-government when Democrats are in charge, but are kind of anti-government when Trump is in charge because Trump is in charge of the government, but also is against it, but he really is just in favor of anyone who vaguely supports him, and people who support him mostly hate the government. So, you know, it's a little complicated. And these groups are finding common cause at a moment when, you know, there's heightened stress, there's heightened uh, frustration with the government when the government is trying to respond to a pandemic, and then when the target in question is a Democrat— oh, here's where all the threads come together, and it's not actually the least bit surprising that all of their motivations align to the point that they can make common cause. If you want to learn more about all the people arrested as part of this plot, the Detroit Free Press did a good in-depth analysis on all of them, went and you know talked to their family and their ex lovers and their neighbors and, and whatnot. So like it's just a, a piece written by the staff of the Detroit Free Press titled 13 Men Charged in Alleged Kidnapping Plot, Many with Troubled Pasts. One of the least surprising headlines I've read recently. What you will learn when you read that article is that with the exception of the anarchists, who are, you know, two out of the 13, the people are pretty much who you expect them to be. They're People who have had troubled lives, who have a lot of alcohol related to their life, a lot of anger, a lot of violence, a lot of guns, poverty, living in rural areas, and getting frustrated at the government and finding each other at pro-gun rallies. Not that complicated. So if you come across anyone 
saying that the media is lying to you about who was actually behind the plot, uh, just go ahead and drop a link to that article to them. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. And by the way, and a listener wrote in recently saying that or asking who the song is, what the song is, that plays after the activism, which made me realize that I had not been including that in the notes recently. So if you want to find that, the singer's name is Theo Bard. And the song is This Fickle World, but the link is now in the show notes, so you can find out where to buy it. I think it's only available to purchase on one website on the internet and not available anywhere else, so you have to go find it there. But I highly recommend it. So finally, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.